Great to see you. It's Daylight Savings. It's also No More Mask Day. <laughs> this should be a national holiday, if you ask me. Oh my gosh, I'm so great. It's so great to see your beautiful, smiling faces. Glad you're here. Um, again, I'm Andrew, if we haven't met yet. Um, and today, I just wanted to begin with something that we like rarely do in our culture. And if you're new, I promise I'm, I'm not really weird, but maybe this will strike you as weird. I just want to take a few seconds... Uh, for silence, to just center ourselves and to come awake to the presence of God. So let's do that right now. Father, you're here, and we are here, and you have our full attention. Cannot wait for what you are going to say to us today. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you so much. All right, let's stand to our feet, and we're going to have a reading from the scripture. We're going to read a total of 10 verses this morning, and we're actually going to take two weeks to study this passage together. Um, because there's so much here. But let's, let's just begin here in verse 1. Then, after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem, and this time with Barnabas. I took Titus along with me, and I went in response to a revelation. And meeting privately with those esteemed as leaders, I presented to them the gospel that I preached among the, go- the Gentiles. And I wanted to be sure that I was not running and had not been running my, my race in vain. Yet not even Titus, who was with me, was compelled to be circumcised, even though he was a Greek. And this matter arose because some false believers had infiltrated our ranks to spy on the freedom that we have in Christ Jesus and to make us slaves. And we did not give in to them even for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. Next slide. As for those who were held in high esteem, whatever they were makes no difference to me because God does not show favoritism. Amen to that. They added nothing to my message. On the contrary, they recognized that I had been entrusted with the task of preaching the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been to the circumcised. For God, who was at work in Peter as an apostle to the circumcised, was also at work in me as an apostle to the Gentiles. James, Cephas, and John, those esteemed as pillars, gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship when they recognized the grace given to me. And they agreed that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. And all that they asked was that they should continue to remember the poor, the very thing I had been eager to do all along. Amen. You guys can have a seat. So if you've been with us through this little series in the letter to the Galatians, you know that this letter is all about the unifying of God's family from every ethnicity under Jesus. That's kind of the main point. In the early church, like today, there were wrong-headed leaders who were threatening to break the church apart over low-priority things, and what we're going to find is also some racial discrimination. And Paul is like a fierce defender of the church who will not allow it to happen on his watch. And he's sort of 
loudly voicing the truth that Jesus is king, he's the one who unifies us, and he is far more important than anything that threatens to break us apart. Now, I would argue, and I have sort of been arguing over the last month, that this is, what I, what, what's on the screen behind you, this is the one right hill for wise, mature, loving Jesus people everywhere to die on. In a post-COVID, post-George Floyd, post-January 6th moment, we die on the hill of family unity. We can be different in all kinds of ways, but since we trust in Jesus as King, we are one. You are my sister, you are my brother, and family, family unity is the most important thing. So today we're sort of picking up right where things left off, where there's this good guy named Barnabas, you remember him, and he was willing to befriend a villain named Saul, or as we know him as Paul. And Barnabas sort of welcomed him into the family. When no one else was willing to trust him, Barnabas brought him in, and Paul never forgot it. But at the time, um, in some of Paul's early formation, he was still what I like to call an extra grace person, where he had a lot of character flaws that were right on the surface where everyone could see. And as a result of that, he was bringing a lot of heat on the early church in Jerusalem. And so they sort of shipped him off to Tarsus, where he was from, in a region called Cilicia. But did you notice like, where we picked up today? That's where we left off. But where we picked up today, that first phrase that we read 14 years later, 14 years later, that's a long time to just sort of skip over in your autobiography, which is exactly what this was for Paul. This was his shorthand autobiography. 14 years is a long time to skip over. Where were you 14 years ago? Some of you were like in grade school or elementary school or something like that. Um, that's, that's a long time. 14 years ago, I had just gotten my first job as a youth pastor in the suburbs of Portland. I was 20 years old. I was in better shape, had a better hairline, all this stuff. And I just met my wife. But at that time, she was just a friend uh, named Grace. And, and, and now we've been married 12 years. And we have our daughter, Isabel, who's turning 10 tomorrow, which is crazy. So going back 14 years in my story is kind of a trip. See, 14 years is a long time to skip over in your life story. And historians can't really fill in the gaps for us either. Um, Paul became like the most famous person in the early church planting movement, and that was for good reason. But there were about 17 years, give or take, between the road to Damascus where Paul met Jesus and the time he planted his first church. And basically everything that we know about Paul happened after those 14 years that he skipped over in verse, in verse one. Every missionary journey, every church that he planted, every letter that he wrote that is now like a part of the New Testament, all of that came after these 14 years that Paul is referencing here and what we're gonna call his season of obscurity. His season of obscurity. And that's surprising because of who we know Paul to be today, again, for 14 years, he's basically an unknown. He said that in the previous chapter. No one really knew who I was. No one was calling his name. No one was following his lead. Basically, no one cared what he had to say. No one was booking him to preach. There wasn't a, an event where Paul was the headline speaker. None of that. And I say all of that to say this. Maybe you can relate to how Paul must be feeling. Maybe you have like a lot of passion and you feel like you have something great to contribute the world and I think that you do, but no one's really paying attention to you. 
No one really is taking much notice. You don't have any real influence. And maybe this has been going on for a long time, and all indications are that nothing is really changing on that front. And so this is the moment that Paul found himself in. He's in obscurity, and you might find yourself in that sort of season of obscurity as well. But in Paul's case and in yours, obscurity is not a mistake. It's not a coincidence, and it's not you getting a raw deal. Obscurity is a necessary part of your journey of faith and the mark that you make on the world. Let me say that again. Obscurity is a necessary part of your journey of faith and the mark that you make on the world. Let me explain. Number one, we are all following in the example that's been handed down from Jesus. That's what we like to say, we, we follow in Jesus' example. And Jesus had a long season of obscurity as well. Pete Scazzaro writes that 90% of Jesus' ministry, 29 years, was spent in obscurity, hiddenness, and the unseen. This was as important as his three active years. They provided the character foundation for him to walk through the temptations in the wilderness and the pressures from the people around him. These years also empowered him to live in an eternally fruitful life. And as a result, when he was active, Jesus was able to resist the evil one and to choose God's will to go the way of the cross. I love that. I love that. And again, to the desert fathers, man, uh, obscurity was seen as a rite of passage. Obscurity was a rite of passage to the sort of early contemplatives and desert fathers. St. Bernard, he's more than a large dog breed, by the way. St. Bernard was an actual guy. He was a contemplative mystic. And uh, he wrote that action and contemplation together is the highest vocation. He also wrote that there's no room for activism that is not nourished by a rich interior life with God. And that many people are overly active because they find the discipline of the interior life with Jesus tedious. This is what St. Bernard called sloth. He says that's laziness, activism without contemplation. In other words, we cannot give away what we do not possess. And that's exactly what he's talking about. So young Paul was this man of great passion, but he lacked wisdom and he lacked discernment. He lacked discipline. And I'm sure he was not happy to sort of be on the sidelines for these 14 years. But looking back with the benefit of hindsight, those 14 years were a gift. They were useful. What do I mean by that? I believe that obscurity is the training ground for the formation of your character. Obscurity is the training ground for the formation of your character. In The Seven Habits of, uh, of Highly Effective People, Stephen R. Covey writes that somewhere in the 20th century, probably around the 1930s and 40s, the definition of success changed from being a person of virtue to other people perceiving you as virtuous. You see that shift? That is a monumental shift in Western society. It's the difference from being defined by your interior life to being defined externally by what other people say or think. So no longer is it important for you to be kind and generous. What matters is whether or not people think that you are kind and generous. And that is a big fundamental shift in Western society. Also, today we're living in the phenomenon known in sociology as the cult of self. Today, 80% of Americans would say that they're above average. That is the most American stat ever taken. 
80% of us would say that we're above average. According to a New York Times poll, about 40% of Gen Z want to be an influencer for a living. That's kind of crazy. And a huge amount of youth believe deep down that they'll be rich and famous by 25. So like our views of ourself and the way that our society is set up, we're not built for being content in seasons of, an, of, of obscurity. We're actually we're built to, in our society, to be rich and famous at a young age or whatever the case. We're taught to be self-satisfied without any sort of rites of passage or any major journey of character formation. And that's a fundamental flaw in our culture. The best one-liner that I've heard in my entire life, I heard from my mentor, Stan. I was in my early 20s. And um, Stan is, by the way, not a preacher or a pastor or anything like that. He's just a good man who's been following Jesus for a really long time. He's 30 years older than me, and he's taught me so much over the years about being like a husband and father and all of that. Um, And so um, I was with Stan, and I had a good friend of mine who was going through a really rough patch in his life. And so I asked Stan, hey, would you take him backpacking and sort of mentor him a little bit? And so he was happy to do that. So they went on this little backpacking trip. And when they got back, I sat down with Stan, and I was just excited to hear about my buddy's breakthrough. So I asked him how it went. And I'll never forget, Stan said, oh, you know, well, it went okay, He's still got a lot to learn. And I said, well, what do you mean by that? And he said this, well, he still thinks he knows stuff, which to this day is, those of you who have a little bit more uh, life experience chuckle at that because it's the sharpest, most accurate assessment of our generation that I've heard to this day. Thinking that we know stuff without true wisdom limits the influence that we have and the contribution that God wants us to make on the world. Obscurity is the gift that starves the cult of self and cures our exaggerated sense of self-importance. Obscurity starves the cult of self and it cures our sense of exaggerated self-importance. Remember Romans chapter 12 and verse 3 says, For by the grace given me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the faith that God has distributed to each of you. And then later on in that same passage, uh, passage, he says, be devoted to one another and love. He says, honor one another above yourselves. See, we're okay with honor to a degree, but we're not okay with honoring people above ourselves. He says, never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Share with the Lord's people who are in need. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. We have enough trouble blessing people who bless us. But people we curse, no chance of it. And he says, do not be proud. Be willing to associate with people of low position. We associate with people who can help us gain status in some way, shape, or form. People who have something to offer us. But Paul, through his season of obscurity, learns the wisdom, the way of Jesus to say, you know what? No, Uh, associate with people of low position. And he says, do not be conceited. So you guys, you want to make your mark in the world And you want to live a life that matters. And I believe that you are and that you will. But it's in the quiet place over time 
where we become the kinds of people who possess God's patient and gracious heart for the world. And obscurity is what's good for you. It's been 15 years since my buddy went backpacking with Stan, and he's a completely different person than he was back then. I'm proud to say that he's still my friend, and he's a guy that I greatly admire. So uh, with the time we have left, I just want to share with you a couple of things, a couple of things that I have personally learned in my season of obscurity and what I'm currently learning as well. So obscurity is where we learn patience. It's where we learn patience. That is this idea that only God is in control of the passage of time. Not me, it's God. It's where we learn restraint. Restraint keeps us from reaching for glory that belongs to him. We need restraint. Obscurity is where we learn submission. I'm not an autonomous or sovereign person. Only God is. I need people. And I need to be subject to other people. Obscurity is where we learn humility. I'm not the center of the universe. Turns out I'm not essential. God is. This is what we learn in obscurity. We learn self-awareness. By nature, I'm kind of courageous and I'm strong in faith, but I'm also weak in gentleness and I tend to be critical of others. Like these are the things that we learn upon self-reflection. When we're in obscurity, we learn to, de- to deflect praise. We deflect praise. I don't believe my own hype. When people hype me up, I-, I-, I know better. I know that if there's anything good or praiseworthy in me, then God is the one who deserves the credit, and I know how to direct the credit back to him. Obscurity is where I learn to listen and to think well. I can pay attention to other people's points of view and I can meditate on what I believe and what I think before I speak. I can do that clearly when I am in obscurity. Um, It's also where we learn to practice secret righteousness. You remember this from our series on the Sermon on the Mount. Generosity and prayer. Your prayer closet and your bank account are private for a reason. Because it's in the quiet where you practice righteousness, where God forms your character. It's also where we learn to serve when no one's paying attention, no one's watching. I don't have to get noticed in order to do the right thing. Remember, Jesus made it abundantly clear that if you want to be great in the kingdom of God, then you must learn to become the greatest servant. So the ones of you who are quietly, without anyone paying attention, selflessly giving your life away, you are the ones who are paying attention to what Jesus had to say in the first place. And you will be rewarded greatly in the kingdom of God and in the age to come. That is the promise from the scriptures. That's not you selflessly or um, foolishly giving your life away. It's actually for um, your good that you would give your life away in that way. It's also uh, where we learn to practice the presence of God. Practice the presence of God. And this is how we remain connected or we connect ourselves and become present with the Spirit of God moment by moment. It's also where we strengthen our interior life. I'm not defined by what other people say or think about me. I'm secure in who I am before Jesus. I'm a son of God, or maybe for you, I'm a daughter of God. These are just a few ways 
or a few things that we learn in obscurity. And these are the things that God wants to shape in your heart when no one else is paying attention. These are essential parts, I would say, of being a wise and mature Jesus person who is capable of making a positive impact in the world. See, we've been so busy trying to build our personal brand and trying to gain influence and be, we're image obsessed in our culture, that we've neglected our formation. We shouldn't be afraid of obscurity. We should be afraid of becoming self-satisfied with mediocrity, with worldly wisdom, with weak character. That's what should terrify us. Obscurity should be something that we welcome that we embrace because God wants to form something deeply in us. And the process of formation, it shapes you into the kind of person that God will use to make an amazing and powerful impact in the world. When we practice his presence, as I know that you do, you become that kind of person who wants the things that God wants in the world. His character and his attributes and the way that he moves through the world, it just begins to rub off on you so that you want and you desire the things that God wants in life. It's beautiful. And by the way, you cannot acquire what I'm telling you through information transfer. The podcast, the book, it won't do it. You can become an expert in this stuff, but you cannot learn how to be like Jesus through information transfer. You learn it in the quiet with God, and then that character that's formed in you by God's Spirit begins to work its way out into your life and into your relationships. It is good. Thank you, Geneva. You're not trying to be perceived as kind and generous. You just are kind and generous. Because it's how God has reformed and reshaped you in the quiet, in obscurity. Zechariah chapter 4, verse 10, the prophet says to the shattered king, while Jerusalem is in ruins, he says, do not despise the day of small things. Do not despise the day of small things. It's King Zerubbabel. He's an absolutely shattered man because he returns to Jerusalem to see it in a pile of rubble. He's not sure what to do. They have very little funds to repair and remake it, and they're just kind of at wit's end. And then this prophet comes along, do not despise the day of small things. Amen. That's good stuff. Is it cool with you guys if I finish my rant? Would that be all right? Okay, I'm going to do that. <clears throat> I believe that deep down, you don't want an influence that outpaces your character. I don't think you want that. Because we've seen it all too often in the church. And whatever that happens in Christian circles, what happens is it either ends in the moral failure of a charismatic leader and the fallout from it, or it leads to like a deformed culture where the in-group is really self-satisfied in an echo chamber, but then in reality you see what's true and, and really they're blind to what they're missing, which is usually the heart of God. It's so tragic. I've seen it way too many times to count. Now, Riverbend, as you guys know, is far, far from a perfect church. Um, exhibit A is it's me who's standing up here uh, teaching. So we're not claiming to be anything, but we are determined we are determined to see God's kingdom come here in Bend as in heaven. And last month, our staff team, we kind of all got together for a day of prayer and vision and all of that. And it was amazing, all of the good things that are happening with Alpha and some future stuff that we're going to do. 
all the good stuff. But one of the questions that I asked our team was this. If God answered your wildest prayers for revival, would you have the character to lead it forward? And I want you to think about that. If God answered your wildest prayer for revival, would you have the character to lead it forward? By the way, did you see what I did there? I'm challenging our resolve to pray for revival, which if you've been around long, you know that this is one of my favorite things to, ch- to chat about. If you're, not, if you're not currently praying for God to move powerfully and miraculously, miraculously in our midst, why the hell not? Sincerely. Why would you not be doing that? It's to, to my, like, it's the, one of the only reasons why I exist, why I can figure that I'm here on this planet, is just to guide people to love Jesus passionately and to follow him faithfully in the power of the Holy Spirit, and then to guide my kids to take the project further than I ever could. That is why I think that I'm here. And if we are not praying for God to move in that kind of big and miraculous and widespread way, then our prayers are not big or interesting enough. Amen. It's not. We, we have to get our heads right. We have to right-size God and start praying for things that matter. We're too busy being afraid of whether or not we're going to fail when in reality we should be afraid of succeeding at things that just don't matter. But if we did pray like that, and God did bring revival, and it broke out, and it broke through the hard soil of the Pacific Northwest, would you and I have the character, the maturity in Christ, to sustain that ministry for a lifetime? See where I'm going with that? Can you handle people loving you? Can you handle people hating you? Should people be following you? Should people be training to become like you are? Another way of saying the same thing is, would we be better off if there were hundreds of more people like you running around Bend? Or would we just be creating more problems? People who gossip, people who are always stressed out, or saying one thing and doing another, practicing hypocrisy or whatever. What would the consequences be if there were hundreds of people following your example? Paul, after his really long season of obscurity, he was able to say, follow me as I follow Christ. In other words, what he's saying there is, if you learn from me, you'll become a more kind and generous and and gracious and patient and loving and humble person. You'll be more like Jesus if you roll with me. If you roll with me and if you follow my example, if you put into practice the things that I'm teaching you, you will become more like Jesus. He's able to say that now after his season of obscurity. And you want to be able to say that too. You want to be able to say that too. You want to become the kind of person and, and that, that people can look up to and say, you know what, I know that I'll become more like Jesus, Jesus if I start rolling with them. That's the kind of person that you want to be. And that's not, you don't become that way by being seen and receiving accolades. That's not how you become a full, whole, mature Jesus person. You you become that kind of person by practicing righteousness in secret. Remember, that's a major theme of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 6. Also, 1 Peter 5, 6 says, Humble yourselves, therefore, 
under God's mighty hand that he might lift you up in due time. Come on, that's good. So if you follow Jesus in this way, and if you are faithful, God might end up elevating you, and I, I hope that he does, to the point where you may be seen by others. But then you'll have the maturity in Christ to not be intoxicated by the power. You guys have heard that statement, right? You remember that? Power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. I believe that. I, I think that that's spot on. It's true in the church. Again, all too often, cue the list of all the failed celebrity pastors of the last decade. Oh, wait, please don't do that. It would take way too long because the list is huge. But when you have lived well and when you have lived faithfully, in seasons of obscurity, you possess the strength of soul to choose the cross and not the throne. And that's what we are made for. Leaders with integrity follow Jesus' example, and they use their power to serve others and to benefit society as a whole. Good leaders of integrity do not need to be told to keep their ego in check because they're already deploying their authority and power and influence for the good of others. This is the way of Jesus and it is the way of the cross without question. And I happen to have just a, a couple of friends who have excelled so much that they've kind of become like low grade, like mildly famous. Um, in the Christian circles particularly, they have a huge influence by, by normal standards. And by the way, none of those people that I know, none of the ones that I know, describe getting famous as being good for their soul. No one I know who has thousands of people listening to them and, and, and watching them work, no one I know who is that level of, of fame describes it as fun, what they imagined, or good for them and their family. Every single one of them describes it as being difficult, agonizing, and filled with responsibility. But I asked one of them to give me his advice. I said, well, what about like when your influence starts to grow, people start paying attention and following your lead? He says, well, you, the first thing is you need to learn how to dethrone yourself. Dethrone yourself. Show restraint. Deflect praise. Make much of Jesus, glorify Jesus. He's the one who we're celebrating. He's the one that we're trying to make famous. And then use whatever you've got. Leverage it all for the advance of the kingdom of God, not your personal brand. And to me, that is exactly the kind of person that God can trust with genuine authority and real power. If he's telling the truth, and I think that he is. You want to be the person who can be trusted with authority, don't you? I was just talking with John before the gathering, and he said he just finally retired. It's been something he's been wanting to do forever. One of the reasons that he kind of got pushed towards retirement is he kept doing a good job at his work to the point where they kept wanting to give him more and more and more and more stuff. And he was like, I can't handle it. I don't want to do all of this. And so he made plans to retire, and now he's doing dishes at home, which is to Karen's benefit. She's like all about it. It's like life-changing. And when you become the kind of person who possesses the character 
to choose the cross and not the throne, then the Lord will continue to give you an increase of authority and power and all the spiritual good stuff because you won't use it to enhance your brand or to improve your self-image. You'll use it to advance the kingdom of God. Amen? So my prayer for you is that you only gain visibility and influence when you have the Christian character to handle it wisely. Because we don't want to see you crashing and burning. We don't want to see you image obsessed and all of that. We want to see you um, serving God and his kingdom. One final quote, and then we're going to wrap up. Um, Henry Nouwen, who's this incredible Catholic sort of contemplative dude, he, he writes this. He says, mostly we think of people with great authority as higher up, far away, and hard to reach. But spiritual authority comes from compassion and emerges from deep inner solidarity with those who are subject to authority. The one who is fully like us, who deeply understands our joys and our pains and our hopes and our, our desires, and who is willing and able to walk with us, that is the one to whom we gladly give authority and whose subjects we are willing to be. It is the compassionate authority that empowers, encourages, calls forth hidden gifts, and enables great things to happen. You guys, that's just like Jesus. That is exactly what Jesus did for you and I. And he is so beautiful. So when we say welcome to church, what we mean by that is there's no ladder to climb here. There's no hierarchy for you to sort of climb the ranks in. There's just people to be loved. And I think that the people to be loved here are phenomenal, but you're also going to find that they require all of your patience, all of your humility, all of your service, all of your grace, all of your kindness. And I think that ultimately that's good for you. It's good for your character to be tested in that way. It's good for you to flex those muscles. It's good for you to become the kind of person that Jesus was. And we learn all of these things, not by being seen and receiving accolades, but in the quiet place where we practice secret righteousness. So I just want to leave you with just a few quick reflections. And my hope is that as we wrap up here, is that we would really consider these questions. And maybe you might even take a picture of these questions so that you can reflect on them in your time alone in the quiet with God this week. But the first one is this. Embrace your season of, of obscurity as God's way of forming character in you. Embrace your season of obscurity as God's way of forming character in you. So there's, there's maybe unanswered prayer in your life. There's things that you want God to do and you can't figure out why they're not happening for you yet. I understand. I've been there. I get it. But ask yourself, God, what are you trying to teach me? What are you trying to show me in this season of obscurity when no one's paying attention? Number two, ask God what gap do you want to address in the soul of my leadership first? That's a tough one. I would ask it often just to say, God, where do you want to start? I know there's all kinds of things that need to happen in my heart. Where do you want to start? Number three, are you being faithful to advance God's kingdom with the power and influence that you have today? We're all interested in, in getting more influence we're all interested in getting more authority and power. I think that's actually, when it's directed in the right direction towards the kingdom, it's all good. But what about what God has given you today? 
the talents or the things that he's given you? What are you doing with that? Are you investing those things faithfully or not? Number four, are you becoming the kind of person that God can trust with great spiritual power? Do you possess the maturity? Do you possess the integrity that if God were to give you a lot more influence, a lot more spiritual power, a lot more authority, would you be wielding that responsibly? Can God just keep blessing you, keep giving you more stuff? Because everything that he gives you, you deploy for the advance of the kingdom. And number five, are you praying with unbending resolve for revival in our time? You know I had to sneak it in there. It's why I'm here, it's why I'm your pastor. To get your eyes off of the small petty things that we think matter and get it on to the kingdom. Jesus is coming back soon. He's returning. I don't know the day, the hour, it doesn't matter. I just know what my assignment is. I know what my mission is. And I know that you're called to be a part of that too. Will you pray with unbending resolve for the revival in our time and space? Wouldn't it be so cool if you get to look back on life? All of us are much older. We could say, you know what? We were part of something that God did. And wouldn't it be so cool that rather than handing down to our kids a legacy of like a deformed culture, we're all really self-satisfied with mediocreness and weak character and all this stuff. What if we were actually able to hand down a legacy to our kids of like robustly and honestly and radically following after Jesus? And then our kids would be able to say, you know what, no, I saw mom, I saw dad, I saw my aunties and uncles like living for a Jesus in a way that I know what it is. I know what it is to follow Jesus because I've seen it and I've experienced it and I've benefited from it. Wouldn't that be amazing? And then my dream and my prayer, the thing that I pray over my kids is that they would be able to take the project further than I ever could. I want my daughter who turns 10 tomorrow to have more resolve, more, more spiritual power, more character, more ambition, more faith, more courage, more boldness than I have. I think she's gonna need it. I think the 2021 is rough, 2022 is rough. I think 2050 is coming in hot. So we need to have our, our kids need to be given a robust model of discipleship and no one's gonna show them if it's not you. Let's be faithful to Jesus, y'all. Let's do it. Let's stand and pray together. I just want to encourage you, if you haven't already, to just take note of these things. Even take a photo of these things. If you're a note taker, have them written down. Again, if this was about information transfer, we would all be mature in Jesus by now. We've heard enough sermons. We've read enough books. There's enough podcasts and websites available to us. It's not about information transfer, is it? It's about God deeply forming things in us as we practice his presence. So please bring these things before the Lord as you pray this week, and let's pray together. Father, we just wanna say that we love you. We wanna say thank you so much that you have been faithful to be here this morning and to speak to us. And God, there's all kinds of unanswered prayers that we have. There's all kinds of things that we long for and want in life, some of which we, we don't know if we'll ever see the answer to. But like Paul, we want to embrace our obscurity 
We want to embrace that so that you can do the work that needs to happen inside of us. So God, we pray that you would help us to sort out the ways that we're image obsessed, the ways that we're trying to be perceived by others and what's deeply going on in our hearts. And God, we wanna be the kinds of people who you can entrust with great spiritual power so that when we pray for revival, it actually means something. The prayer of a righteous man avails much, the scripture says. We want to be those kinds of people that you can entrust with great spiritual power. Do the work in us, we pray. God, give us the power, give us the eyesight to choose the cross and not the throne. And Jesus, we just pray you would come quickly. God, we are happy about today. We're happy that there's snow falling. We're happy that it's gonna stay sunny a little bit longer this afternoon. But, but we're not truly content until everything is made right in the new creation. That's where we orient our help, ourselves. That's where we point our hope. So I just wanna pray one last thing. Just Holy Spirit, come. Fill us, fill our hearts today, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, everyone, we are going to take communion now. So during this next song, come up to the table, grab the bread and the cup, and then we'll take it together as a church here in a minute. Um, also, prayer wall is open. Geneva and Sam are there. We'd love to pray for you. Again, anything at all. I heard this week about a brother who was here, and he's going through the gnarliest thing in life. And he, for fear of what other people might think, wasn't able to have the courage to go back to receive prayer. And I get it, like we live in whatever, it's fine. But we just want you to feel the freedom to say, you know what, I, I, I need the Lord actually, I really do. I need him to move in my life in this way. We believe that matters, we believe all of this matters. So we just wanna encourage you, that don't, do not shy away from receiving prayer today. And then we don't withhold what Jesus is owed. He's owed our, our worship and our praise. And so let's praise him as the, as the ladies lead us. God bless, guys.